Hello, and welcome to the Star Family Wisdom Podcast. I'm Jenna Layden, the founder of Star Family Wisdom and a former global vice president for Whole Foods Market. Thanks so much for being with us today. If you are new to the podcast, Thanks for joining and checking us out. If you are coming back, thanks for tuning in again. And don't forget to like, subscribe, rate, review, leave comments, help YouTube know you want more of these videos. If you're watching on YouTube, it's been so fun to connect with all of you and hear what you have to say. And uh, we're just so thrilled to be on this journey with you. And today, my co-host, Sinead Wellahan, is not with us, but I am interviewing a very special guest. Paul Anthony Wallace. Paul Anthony Wallace is an internationally best-selling author whose books probe world mythologies and ancestral narratives for their insights into human origins, human potential, and our place in the cosmos. Paul served as a church doctor, a theological educator, and an archdeacon in the Anglican Church in Australia, and he has published numerous titles on Christian mysticism and spirituality. He's a popular speaker at summits and conferences around the world now, and his 2020 book, Escaping from Eden, uh, got tons of acclaim and was hailed by George Norrie as this generation's chariots of the gods. And this is what propelled Paul onto the international stage as the go-to guy in the field of paleocontact. His internationally best-selling sequel, The Scars of Eden, is endorsed by Eric Von Daniken, and his new book, Echoes of Eden, is out now and has just been endorsed by George Norrie. And you can find Paul's interviews and a lot of his work on his YouTube channels, Paul Wallace, uh, on YouTube, and then The Fifth Kind TV. And this was a very special conversation following the book review that I did for Paul Wallace's uh, Escaping from Eden. And if you have not watched that episode, I highly recommend that you go back and watch that just to get a foundational understanding of Paul's work. If you have not read the books, that's episode 11. Again, check that out. In that episode, I talk all about Escaping from Eden and some of Paul's findings as he went back and re-reviewed the Bible with fresh eyes and as he started to understand a very different translation of the Bible and how that translation is also corroborated by many other ancient texts and origin stories on our planet. So this was a really big conversation where we talked a lot about what it means to evolve our worldview while we also maintain a spiritual connection with the universe, with God, with source, and how we can, again, evolve our understanding of who God is and what role God or other beings have played in our history, because it's our understanding that both are true, that we absolutely have had ET intervention and presence in our history, and we have a creator of this universe, <clears throat> and we have perhaps experienced some misinterpretation of our ancient history in modern times. And I love how Paul brings this evolved, you know, Christian perspective to this conversation and shares in very profound ways how we can absolutely experience a connection with God, with source, 
on a whole new level when we are willing to open ourselves to a different interpretation of our history and of our spirituality and, and what that means for us as we move forward. So we talk a lot about how we process this changing worldview that we develop, how we go from being either atheist like myself or people of faith like Paul to now having this particular worldview, one that includes hybridization and ancient contact from ET beings, one that includes a more spiritually connected and expansive and complex universe than we maybe once understood. And Paul's perspective and his journey, I think, can be a great example for so many people who are on this journey of self-discovery, but also peeling back the layers of our world history and starting to understand that maybe there's something different we need to look at here. And that can be a big thing to process and a big thing to go through. And for both Paul and I, we acknowledge that we experienced fear in that process and that's normal. And we can move beyond that fear as well. Paul talks about his connection and learning and education from so many indigenous leaders and elders around the world and how this journey of retranslating the Bible with what he knows to be true has helped him understand and integrate indigenous wisdom into his worldview and into his spirituality, which I think is really beautiful. We talk about energy medicine, we talk about shamanic healing, and we talk about all of these things within the context of how can we face our shadow as a civilization so that we can move forward in a more positive way. So this is a big conversation. We are so thrilled to bring it to you and hope to have more on this topic. And if you are not familiar with Paul's work, go get familiar with it. We have his websites, his YouTube channels, his book links in the show notes. Check out his books, read them in sequential order. You'll love them. He brings humor and lightness to the topic, which isn't easy, you know, with this kind of topic, but he does a good job of, of helping the reader understand his journey and how he's processed it and, and where we can maybe, you know, find some levity in all of this. So enjoy this conversation and we'll see you on the other side. Welcome everyone. We are here today with Paul Anthony Wallace, who, as we discussed, is an internationally best-selling author and former archdeacon of the Anglican Church in Australia and someone who is quickly on the rise in the field of paleocontact, if not a leader of the field at this point. And uh, today we're talking about Paul's books, his research, his personal experience, understanding the ET contact phenomena, which of course is very near and dear to our hearts here at Star Family Wisdom. So welcome, Paul. We're so excited to have you. G'day, Jenna. Thank you so much for having me on your show today. It's such a pleasure. It's such a pleasure. I'm a big fan of your work and only found it as recently as I think January of this year. So I was pretty far along in my research and exploration of these topics before I found your work and 
I can just say it has been so validating for me in, in my own experiences and in my changing belief system and the, the shift in worldview that I've gone through. So thank you for that. Oh, that's wonderful to hear. Thank you. Yeah. And for, for those who may not be as familiar with you and your work, let's maybe just start with your origin story, because it's uh, a little unusual that a former archdeacon and a former atheist would be having a conversation like this today. So, so maybe just kind of briefly, you know, give the audience a synopsis of what led you to this point of deeper research into our history and reinterpreting, you know, our biblical and ancient texts. How did you get here? Sure. Well, you're absolutely right, Jenna. It does surprise people. People know me as someone who writes in the field of paleo contact, and then it surprises them to hear I've come from a background in church ministry. And I was 33 years in church-based ministry as a church doctor, a theological educator, and an archdeacon for the Anglican Church in Australia, which is one down from a bishop. It's kind of a troubleshooting role. But it was in that middle role, the theological educator, that I really met the white rabbit that uh, led me on this journey into paleo contact because I was training pastors in hermeneutics. And hermeneutics is the principles of interpreting ancient texts. How should you understand them? What did the author intend? How do you work that out? And so in training pastors, I would teach things like form criticism, source criticism, where you ask what kind of literature is this and how do you know what it is? What are the clues within the text and the context? And then where did it come from? Is this the original form? How does it differ from the original form? And if, if it does differ, why? And these are basic tools that uh, all pastors learn when they do a theological qualification. And it was actually those tools alongside the linguistic tools of asking, what do the words mean? that led me down the avenue that's led me into paleo contact. There are certain key words in the Hebrew texts, in particular of the Old Testament, that throw up some anomalies in the stories we generally tell from the Bible. And it was drilling down into those, with those kinds of questions that opened up a whole world of ancient ET contact, Jimmy. And that's big, that's big to uncover and, and process. And you had a period of, of time where you weren't um, busy. You had an, yes. an injury, you were recovering from that. And so you, you had time on your hands to really do this extra research and process and, 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 and really dig deep, you know, internally about what this meant. And I'm curious, before we get into some of the, the details of your findings, as you had some of those initial aha moments, which were probably quite startling, how did you process that emotionally, intellectually? You know, what was your process like going through that? Well, I had long suspected there might be some other entities washing around in the ancient texts, um, partly through at the time I had had in the past to look at translation issues, partly through the work of ministry, because in 33 years in ministry, you will come across some paranormal situations that you have to interpret and you have to begin confronting that there are a few more entities 
washing around in the cosmos than we generally talk about. That was part of it. Another aspect of my journey was that when I was 11 years old, I had read Chariots of the Gods by Eric von Daniken, who I felt had accurately put his finger on a gap in our ability to explain ourselves as a conscious, intelligent species. And he raised the question, would it make more sense of our development as a species if we allowed for the possibility there may have been external interventions to aid our development? And I thought that made a lot of sense. That was in the back of my mind for many years. And then my musings on that were reiterated more than a decade ago when, to my absolute astonishment, the Roman Catholic Church called on the Pontifical Academy of Sciences. This was under Pope Benedict XVI, the most conservative pope in my lifetime, mm -hmm. asked the Pontifical Academy of Sciences to hold a symposium to discuss the theological implications of contact with other civilizations. And I could have fallen off my seat when I heard that because <laughs> it was only 400 years ago. The same institution was burning people at the stake right. for merely suggesting there might be life in the cosmos and following that symposium which was uh, called a colloquium senior spokespeople for the curious stepped forward and basically said there's no theological issue we shouldn't be surprised to meet cosmic neighbors we should be ready to embrace them as brother and sister aliens we shouldn't be surprised because they're in the bible they're in the old testament and the new testament and hearing that from a theologian as senior as Guy Consolmagno, who's a senior astronomer for the Vatican, uh, I raised an eyebrow and I thought, could I really have missed something as glaring as aliens in the Bible? And so the question had been in my mind for about a decade. And then, Jenny, you're absolutely right. It was just the good fortune of an accident, an ultimate Frisbee injury that gave me some convalescence time to go back to these questions and find out what was really going on there. And the gift of time is so vital because since doing the research for the Eden series, from time to time, I'll ask uh, fellow preachers and pastors, are you aware that the biblical stories of the Elohim, which are translated as God's stories, are probably based on the Mesopotamian stories? Well, yes, I think I remember that from college, yes. Are you aware that the Mesopotamian stories are not about God, they're about sky people? Oh yes, I vaguely remember that. Are you aware that sky people probably means ETs? Mm, yes, I suppose it probably does mean that. So what are your thoughts about our God stories being based on stories of ETs? Well, I hadn't really put much thought to it. And the reason they haven't put much thought to it is because like everybody else, pastors and preachers are overscheduled and they will spot these anomalies as I did. But until you have something like an ultimate Frisbee injury, you don't have the time to follow your curiosity and ask, what does that mean? Because you've got your job to do of running an organization, keeping a congregation happy. And most congregations more or less expect you to keep rehearsing the same limited canon of right. ideas that's the, their security is built on that and any pastor knows if they go down this rabbit hole it's going to throw up some really fundamental questions so they need not only the time but they need the courage to do it and i was very fortunate that i was not leading a congregation when i did the research because 
it really would split most congregations to put out books like I have in the Eden right. series. About half your congregation will say, thank you, Pastor, for putting this on the table, either because I've seen this in the Bible as well, or because I've had close encounter experiences and I know there's something else going on. Yeah. But the other half of your congregation would say, I'm very sorry, Pastor, we think this is heresy. You can't stay here. And so it was the gift of that time that allowed me the opportunity to follow the data, to see where it led, and then realize that this conversation about paleo contact was part of mainstream conversation in the beginning of Christianity before it became a taboo. Right. And it also appears that you know, as we unpack this new interpretation of the biblical texts and, and the stories we've, you know, heard in, in, in churches all over uh, this country and many others, that both ETs being part of our history and us having a loving creator God can both be true. And so I'd love to maybe yes. just touch on that for a moment and, and what, you know, your, I guess, current belief system is for anyone who is a person of faith or has sure. been a person of faith, you know, how do you reconcile these two? Because I think, like you said, you know, for any congregation that would split, you know, a lot of the, the group down, down the middle and how do you help people reconcile that? Jenna, that is one of the main questions I'm asked. Uh, when people come to me for coaching three quarters of the time, that's essentially the question they're asking because they believe in God or they've had powerful experiences that point to the reality of God, but then they've seen these other things, they've had these other experiences. How do you hold them together? And you're right, there are a few moments in my research journey where it did feel a bit like the floor was falling away from me because my, my worldview was suddenly all at sea. And I remember a particular moment when the data was leading me to the conclusion that Homo sapiens, as we know ourselves to be, is the result of a series of interventions by ET colonizers who came and did genetic modification work with the forms of life that were already on the planet in order to generate a species that was intelligent enough to work with or to work for them. And when I found I had to reach that conclusion from the data in the Bible, as well as in ancestral narratives all around the world, that was a really difficult moment to process because for 30 years, I had lived in a universe where humankind was God's special, beloved, unique creation, the apple of his eye. Would he really allow us to be toyed with like we've toyed with sheep and created Dolly the sheep? Would he allow some other species to come in and breed us like we've bred dogs? And suddenly it felt like a massive demotion for the human race. Yeah. And my idea of how much God loved us suddenly seemed to do a flip. And I had to take a while to think that through and just think through the implications of what populated universe means. Right. If it's a populated universe, then it's a universe full of species. And we're just one of them. Just as planet Earth is full of species and, and we're just one of them. 
So what's the difference between us breeding dogs and cosmic neighbors modifying us? What's the difference between us artificially creating Dolly the sheep and someone having done that to primates here? There is no difference, but emotionally it feels very different. And where it took me was to begin expanding my concept of who and what God is, because I had to allow my image of God to change from what was really a very anthropomorphic image, a puppet master, a Father Christmas kind of figure, and begin thinking, dare I say, in a bit more of a mature way about God as the source of the cosmos. What does it mean to really accept that God is the source of the cosmos and everything in it, that in which we all live and move and have our being? Now, that's a definition from the Apostle Paul. But in a way, I'd never really fully thought through the implications of that, particularly if you accept we're in a populated universe. And I came to terms with it and I realized that. I still believed in God, the source of the cosmos. I had still had many experiences that pointed to the consciousness and intelligence of the creative source. Mm -hmm. I just needed to understand it a little bit differently. And at first it was scary, but further down the track, having done the processing, my sense of connection with God is more stable and profound than ever it's been before. Uh, so though the reframing is scary at the start, you get to a place of far greater acceptance, uh, contentment, assurance, and suddenly it's an exciting universe to be in again. I love that you share that because I think that's so important for people who are on this, <clears throat> this journey and, and who are going through that scary moment because I went through that as well, you know, having this, this realization that, oh my gosh, our story is not what, you know, I was taught and told and, and, and once we get to the other side of that, it is beautiful to understand we actually have this, this connection with source, with God, with the universe. Exactly. And yeah. we all do. We yeah. all do. So I had to get out of my tribal thinking right. as well, where it was right. only Christians who were connected with God in my right. <laughs> worldview. Now the whole cosmos is connected. But at first it feels like you're losing a father figure right. uh, because that's been your image of God. And at the end of the process, you have this far more intimate sense of connection than you started with. But it's almost like you have to go through a grief process for your old worldview, even if you think, OK, I can see my old worldview was wrong or inaccurate. You still have to grieve for it because it's been your life. It's been your uh, place of security. And you have to go through a process of letting it go in order for a new worldview to form. And it's a little bit like the stages of grief. So yeah. you begin with denial. Oh, that can't be right. God wouldn't let that happen, was sort of my first initial thought. And then you have bargaining. No, I can see this new information is real. Can I massage it into my old worldview? Yeah. I meet a lot of people trying to do that. And the answer is no, you can't really you do have to change your worldview in the light of data. And then you get angry. Oh my goodness, I've been lied to. Mm -hmm. I've been like, how could those guys at theological college allow us to miss this? And I'm angry with myself for not having joined the dots before. And then you reach a point of uh, depression 
uh, where you think, oh, what do I do now? What do I do in this new universe? And then you reach acceptance of realizing we are all on a learning journey. Isn't it wonderful to learn new and truer things? And isn't it now about how do I live in this cosmos? How do I thrive in this cosmos? How do I connect with the cosmic source, understanding God in a different way? And how do I reconnect with Jesus? And you can't fast track that process. Mm. You, in my opinion, I do think when your worldview radically shifts, you must take time over the steps. Otherwise you can stay trapped in confusion or anger which can be very energizing, but it makes you bad company. You've got to get to that resolved place of asking the question, well, how do I live in this cosmos? And hopefully that's where my books take people. So for anyone who has not read Paul's books, absolutely pick them up. They have been so pivotal for me on my journey and, uh, and they're great reads. They're fun. I think you, you have a fun way of you know, articulating this information and, and making it not so heavy you know, as you're going through that relearning process. Oh, that's certainly my intention. And I, I hope my humor is in there to carry people along. And I, I tell it a story as well. So it's not, they're not like textbooks where I, the expert, am telling the reader how it is. I share my story and the reader kind of makes the discoveries with me yes, uh, as I, I make that. them. Yeah, I loved that approach. It made it made it a real fun and easy, easy read, even though the, the subject matter is a lot to take in. You know, I, I want to go back to what you mentioned about Jesus for a moment, because as as we're going through this worldview shift and re reimagining, you know, how our, our Bible has been you know, written or what those stories even meant, it can call into question, you know, the entire Christian religion and and what I know to be true is that Jesus's teachings absolutely still apply, right? That even though this, you know, version of our history may be changing a bit, Jesus himself as a teacher and master and son of God who came to earth absolutely had important and profound messages to share with humanity. And so I don't want that to get lost in this, for people who are on this journey of relearning. What would you say about that? Well, that's absolutely right. And you will find Jesus threading through the books because Jesus has been at the center of my life and faith and ministry. And part of my reframing has been, okay, how do I understand Jesus now and his ministry in the light of this new information? Because I've had to reframe my beliefs about the, the Hebrew scriptures and the meaning of them and the content of them radically. How does that relate to Jesus's teaching? And again, my understanding of Jesus, I would say, has really opened up. And I've realized that translation questions are just as important when it comes to Jesus as to the writings of the Hebrew scriptures. So you've got keywords in the Hebrew scriptures like Elohim, which have been translated as God, but often ought to have been translated as the powerful ones. And we're reading about the powerful ones who visited and colonized. And to make that mistake is very distorting of our idea of God. Well, we can make translation mistakes with Jesus that can be distorting as well, or that make him difficult to understand because 
we see Jesus through the lens of 2000 years of institutional religion. And our start point is often, we kind of assume that Jesus lines up with all the dogmas and doctrines we're familiar with. And so we'll hear him using certain trigger words and think, oh, uh, he's teaching that. And the way to avoid that kind of confusion is to go to the original texts in the Greek and the Aramaic words that are there as well, peel all those layers of assumption back by asking what are the root meanings of the words he used. And I think one of the most dramatic examples of this for me is in the very first sermon that Jesus toured with. In the Gospel of Matthew, we're given a one-sentence summary of this message that Jesus traveled around sharing. The works translated in most Bibles today, it sounds like a grave warning. It says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it sounds like he's saying, you better clean your lives up because God is about to show up and you wouldn't want to get on the wrong side of him. That's how we hear that. You go to the root meanings and you realize it's not a warning, it's an invitation. The word repent actually means go beyond the mind. Go beyond the mind. Go beyond your mindset. Think with more than this. Go beyond the mind because the amazing powers and principles and people of the cosmos are available to you, waiting to be embraced. Well, there couldn't be a bigger invitation to explore what's possible than that and then we see jesus going out and showing what's possible right. showing what working with cosmic powers looks like working with cosmic powers mm -hmm. looks like love forgiveness healing entity removal and we look at his life and we see what's possible for a human being and it reframes everything that follows so the work of translation and root meanings is really fundamental and it's opened up to me a far more exciting, a positive view of Jesus. And I've been able to see more clearly the difference between Jesus himself and many of the traditions that have emerged in his name. And some of those traditions have come out of Bible translation issues and some have come through the Roman Empire hijacking Christianity. Right. and morphing it into something somewhat different to how it started out. Right, because it appears as though Jesus is really teaching about cosmic consciousness and our ability to, to align with cosmic consciousness, align with our higher selves, higher intelligence, and, and, and shift our energy field in a way where we're, we're healed and we're clean channels for the universe, to be able to work with the universe and with God in a way yeah. that... The, many churches haven't taught and that's that that that's doing so many people a disservice right if people have this this internal power that that we just didn't realize and that's actually what he was teaching it seems like absolutely jesus is teaching i love how you summarized that is empowering yeah. to people empowering to ordinary people but then you see what the empire did with Christianity. It turned it into a religion of worship and obedience, mm. compliance, yeah. and really pulled Christianity into the feudal structure of the empire, where at the top they had God and the emperor. In the middle, they had the bishops and the senators. And at the bottom of the pyramid, you've got the priests and the people paying, praying, obeying. 
And it reached the point where being a good, compliant, obedient citizen was indistinguishable from their concept of being a Christian. And so those empowering aspects of Jesus's teaching were just ignored for a very, very long time. We have had, though, I mean, this is the power of Jesus's teaching and the power of cosmic source, the power of God. We have had periods of revival through history where totally outside the control of institutional religion, people start having empowering experiences of spirit, empowering experiences of love. They start experiencing healing, entity removal, these other things. And you see these grassroots movements happening. And that's testament to what Jesus actually modeled. So it's never been fully extinguished. It always resurfaces. But in my books, I point out there is a difference of energy between what empire and institution does and what an empowered uh, human being does. And very often empowered people are, don't fare well when governments want full spectrum dominance. Look at what happened with Jesus, an empowered individual. Look at what happened with John the Baptist. And yet their teaching is there to give us the power and the knowledge and the courage to do something about what we discover. Yeah, well, and this is like the shift in human consciousness that's happening on the planet, right? What you described, there is a very patriarchal culture and system that we've created on our planet. And, 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 and a lot of your work around uh, studying indigenous cultures on the planet helps paint a different picture of what a non-patriarchal culture might look like and, and how we might operate, you know, in a much more empowered way, which, which I love. And before we get into some of that research and study that you've done, which, which is near and dear to my heart because I'm a shamanic practitioner, I've studied energy medicine, and I'm also a Cherokee Native American here in the U.S. So, so indigenous culture and reconnecting with that, I think, is vitally important for us. Um, but I don't want to uh, move past the Elohim stories because they're, they're important. I want to touch on that um, for just a few moments. And it relates to, to something you wrote about in your recent book, we were just talking about Jesus and, and some of the different translations you have pointed out related to his teachings. And, and something he, he said that you write about in the third book is him attempting to get his followers to understand that Yahweh is not ultimately God and to, to, to essentially view things differently. And so I'd love for you to talk a bit about the powerful ones, what we know about the powerful ones, and, and then maybe how that ties to, you know, Jesus attempting to set the story straight. Sure. Well, Elohim, the word means the powerful ones. And so my early question in researching Escaping from Eden is, well, how come it's translated as God then? And what happens if we retell the Elohim stories as the stories of the powerful ones? Well, of course, the stories change, but they don't change in a random way. And I could see quickly that when you read the Elohim stories as stories of the powerful ones, you're reading a summary form of the Sumerian, Babylonian, Arcadian, and Assyrian stories about sky people. 
And it suddenly makes sense of a whole load of storylines in the Hebrew canon in which you have powerful ones going to war against each other and thousands of human beings being slaughtered in that conflict. So you realize that you're looking at a world with a spectrum of different kinds of powerful entities. And I stress different kinds. There is um, a body called the Sky Council in the Hebrew canon, what Hayam Ashed called an intergalactic federation. He was the Brigadier General who for 27 years was the Chief of Space Security for Israel. And he said on the basis of his work, he believed that we are currently in contact with an intergalactic federation, again, implying a spectrum of entities. That story is thousands of years old. So now you reframe the stories of the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, in a henotheistic light. And henotheism is the idea that there are many gods, but you serve this one. And that certainly frames a lot of the storylines. So you get to the Ten Commandments, and it's very clear. There are other powerful ones out there, but you are not to talk about them. You're not to serve them. You're not to work for them. Don't even depict them. Uh, forget they're there. Serve this one. Serve Yahweh only. So right then and there, you realize Yahweh fits into this um, this. Uh, population of powerful beings he's one of them and it makes sense now when you get to the story of Yahweh being very jealous of the powerful one of Ekron when uh, some of his human beings go off to consult him and he says is there not a powerful one here you could consult that you go to the powerful one of Ekron and there's this peer-to-peer -peer competition going on suddenly it makes sense Yahweh is one of the Elohim and so the picture emerges of a time when human beings were governed by entities that were not human. And each of these entities had their own colony of human beings. Now you get to Jesus. How does he relate to that? A lot of Christians who read the Bible will have noticed and perhaps been puzzled by the fact that Jesus does not talk about Yahweh. He doesn't teach people to worship Yahweh. Why isn't he using that name? Why isn't he using the holy name? So here we have a conflict all of a sudden. So there's a big question. And then why didn't he unambiguously validate the Hebrew scriptures? Because he didn't. You get to Acts 15 and the early church is wrestling with the question of what do we do with the Hebrew canon? Do we have to believe in it? Do we have to obey it to be Christians? And the council in Acts 15 is headed up by Jesus's brother James and the apostles are present, all the senior leaders are present and they conclude no, faith in the Hebrew canon is not a prerequisite for Christianity, we've moved on. And yet somehow the early church glued the Hebrew scriptures onto the apostolic teachings to make a Bible of Old Testament and New Testament, confusing people for the next 2000 years. But in the beginning, the church leaders were very clear. Jesus isn't building uh, what he started on the Hebrew canon. He didn't endorse the Elohim stories. He didn't endorse the Yahweh stories. He didn't endorse the sixth century BCE edit that turned all that into God's story. 
And um, without that being obvious and clear, they could not have made the decision they did. And once you fully process that, you can go back and see points where Jesus is deliberately um, downgrading the Yahweh stories and turning people away from them. And the most dramatic example of that is a moment where he's teaching about prayer. And Jesus says, what kind of father would give their child a stone? If their child is hungry and thirsty, what kind of father would give them a stone? If their child asked them for fish, what kind of father would give them a snake? Now that, to a lot of readers, is a bizarre thing for Jesus to say. Why would he come up with such a perverse scenario as that? And the answer is he's referring to a Yahweh story or to, to two moments in the Yahweh story where that is exactly what Yahweh did. His hungry and thirsty human beings were suffering in the desert. They'd been on emergency rations for goodness knows how long. They were having problems because of lack of access to safe drinking water. What does Yahweh do? He gives them a stone. And Moses has to get water from the stone. When they say, we can't live on this emergency ration forever. Can we have some proper food, please? Yahweh punishes them by sending not food, but snakes. That's what Jesus is referring to. That's how Yahweh responds to hungry people. What kind of father does that? Jesus says, you evil lot, you know how to look after your children. You wouldn't do that to your children. What kind of father would? In that moment, you can't equate Yahweh with the God that Jesus was revealing and relating to and calling father. There's a total separation in that moment. And when you realize Jesus has done that with the Yahweh stories, go back and look again and think again about what it means when the writers describe Yahweh's snout and Yahweh's skin and his legs and his tail and his flight feathers. And you realize that some of these stories with what we understand as the holy name of God attached to them fit perfectly into the world's canon of dragon narratives mm -hmm. it fits with a global narrative of there being a time when we were governed by non-human entities and that's um that's a real shocker because people think of yahweh as the holy name and in echoes of eden i show that the name itself belongs in the world's canon of dragon narratives mm -hmm. The edit done in the 6th century BCE really throws us off what's happening. And what's happening is that the Bible is full of stories about all kinds of different entities. But in that moment, the holy name of God and the word God got airbrushed over the top of all those other stories so that it might look like a seamless story of God from beginning to end. But it isn't. It's a story about a kaleidoscope of beings and you do the translation work and it becomes clear as day. And you start to see the complexity in our human history as you uncover those different translations. And <clears throat> I just want to reflect for a moment on how <clears throat> my early issues, you know, with the Bible were around this 
this image of God being so violent towards us. You know, I think that yes. very early on felt just so wrong to me. Yes. Just in, intuitively, I, I, I just knew that couldn't be right. And, and so as this, you know, research and translation has come to light, to me, it also makes a lot more sense that we're dealing with an angry ET. We're dealing with yeah. these warring factions of ETs who are just not good to humans. Right? No, that's right. And don't have any empathy towards yeah. them. Uh, can be very vicious and unpredictable, punishing to the seventh generation, yeah. your family line for some mistake you made. And you're right. We, we know it straight away, instinctively, if we're honest, something's off in these stories. Yeah. They are really the stories of colonization and subjugation of human beings, which makes sense when you realize that's what they are. But if you read them as God stories, not only does it distort our ideas of God, that we think God is like that, but if you worship a God who will do genocide, then you will justify genocide. Right, if right. you worship a God who is a xenophobe, you will justify xenophobia. If you worship a God who enslaves human beings, you will justify slavery. You have to, yeah. because that's what your God has done. And so this mistaken translation has produced injustices and violence and genocides for 2000 years now. And that's why I think it's so important that we unravel this problem, that we don't gloss over it and that we say, those are not God's stories. God is not like that so that we can free ourselves from having to justify the impossible and making monsters of ourselves. Right. I, I agree. I think this is just hugely important work in the world today. It's what, what may save humanity if we can evolve our worldview and, and shift how we operate with each other. Um, you know, you referenced the depiction of the powerful ones having kind of a dragon-like uh, body and features. And this is corroborated in other uh, cultures and other cultural stories like the Mesopotamian stories and even in North and South America. And so, so I'd love for you to maybe just connect the dots on that for our audience for a moment so that Folks know this isn't just about what's found in the Bible. We now can compare no. and contrast around the whole world to get a very different, you know, viewpoint of what might have happened. That's exactly right. And for me, it was the correlations that really got my attention to find the same basic story being told from culture to culture all around the world, from age to age, cultures that in the deep past had no contact with each other. In many of the repetitions, it became clear to me that what I was finding was a visual memory being reported by different cultures. It wasn't that a book had gone around the world and been retranslated or a story had gone around the world in Chinese whispers. Each culture had their own language and metaphor to describe what they saw. And I began to realize they saw the same thing. So they saw powerful ones arriving on a planet that had been devastated and flooded and had a blackened sky. And then those powerful ones helped to rehabilitate the land and then work with the life that survived and uh, fine tune Homo sapiens to where we are. That's a story that repeats. And the entities 
uh, referred to. I mentioned Yahweh in the Hebrew scriptures, but you go to the Mesoamerican, you've got Kukulkan, Kukumats, Quetzalcoatl, who again have these reptilian and bird-like features. They're, they're the feathered serpents. Mm -hmm. And then those names are curious. Kukulkan, Quetzalcoatl, Kukumats. Go to Georgia, it's the Colchis. Go to Spain and Portugal, it's the Coca. You've got the Cuchedra, the Acucha. Um, there are a number of others. Akek in Egypt. And they all have this sound. So not only have we got a visual memory going around the world, we've got an auditory memory that's being recorded. The same sound attached to these entities is remembered by cultures all around the world. And so you've got corroborations like that that say this is not just a metaphor, this is not just symbolism, it is not a coincidence that all these cultures have come up with the same storyline and the same sound that they remember and the same visual scene they're describing. But I should say that not all powerful ones are reptilian or bird-like. In many of the stories, the powerful ones are, look very much like us, mm -hmm. only a bit hotter. They are very, very attractive <laughs> uh, to people and that's part of what draws our ancestors to them, to sit at their feet and learn from them. And the earliest stories of contact in many cultures are of beautiful people coming and working with their ancestors to nurture their civilizations, not to enslave them, not to rule over them or despoil them or exploit them, but to teach them how to live on the planet in balance with their environment, what plants are good for food, which ones are good to avoid, which are good for medicine, which are good for higher consciousness. And so we have a spectrum of contact experiences reported by our ancestors, some very traumatizing and some very empowering, and that suggest that some of the company we enjoy today is equally supportive and empowering of our progress as human beings. I'm so glad you touched on that. That was something I was going to bring up and ask you, because I think that's an important thing for us all to sit with as we understand maybe the more negative side of our human history, that we live in a universe that is programmed for duality. That's my understanding. So there's good and bad, right? And all, all civilizations, all beings out there and and at Star Family Wisdom, we are experiencers of ET contact. So that's how my worldview changed from formerly atheist to now deeply spiritual and similar to what you described, feeling this connection, you know, with all of life and the universe in a way that I never understood was possible. And I know that there are benevolent, very friendly ET beings who want to support us and want, want this <clears throat> evolution in our consciousness to occur um, for many of the reasons, you know, you've, you've stated. And, you know, I, I'm reflecting a bit on what you talked about around the, the learning and how humans have learned, you know, from ET beings. And we hear in many, you know, cultures around the world that there were culture bringers that helped establish civilization. <clears throat> and I'd love to hear from you, you know, maybe just some 
highlights of what you've learned from the indigenous, you know, cultures you've spent time with, you've studied and, you know, sat with many elders around the world, you've, you've studied shamanic culture and, um, you know, I'd love to, to hear maybe any wisdom, you know, that has been passed on to you um, that may have come, you know, from these ET beings. Mm. What have you learned from our indigenous cultures? Well, the thing that I think has affected me the most from my contact with guardians and elders of indigenous traditions has been to do with what contact means and what it might look like. And I've been very blessed with input from a particular friend who's a guardian of the Navajo tradition. And so he is a shamanic healer like yourself, Jenna. And he talked me through what the modalities are that he uses and what, what his framework is for understanding them. And as he described that, I realized this is the same. This is the same approach as I would find among the traditional healers of West Africa and Southern Africa. And in those settings, healing is a contact modality. And so my friend in Echoes of Eden, I call him Troy, not his real name. He talks about how when a person arrives for healing, he expects them to arrive with an invisible support cloud of entities who are there to support that person's progress through life and their healing journey and his job as a shamanic healer is to tune into the conversation that's going on between the the client's entities and their own entities tune into the information that's flowing between them so that the healer can work out oh this is where the problem has come from this is how we put the person back into a healthy balance and as he described that, not only could I join the dots with practice in Aboriginal Australia, Southern Africa, as I just said, but I realized that I could understand my own experiences of healing in the Christian world in a very similar way. So I'll, I'll give a for instance. Uh, right at the beginning of my ministry, I was working in London. And a lady came for healing one day because we offered prayer for healing in our church. And she had terrible mobility problems and back pain that she'd been afflicted with for about 20 years. She walked with crutches and she came in for prayer, for healing for her back. And from out of the blue, Pastor Irwin, my senior, said, B, tell us about your dad. And I thought, oh, well, that's a left field question. I wonder why I asked that. And it became very obvious that she hated her dad. Her dad had not um, abused her uh, physically or maybe even deliberately psychologically, but her dad had such major issues that it was easy to see why B was so hurt and resentful having been brought up by him. And as she talked about him, she became even more scrunched up than she was before. And Pastor Owen said, B, do you think you're ready to let go of your resentment and anger that you quite rightly feel towards your dad for what he did? Because it's not doing you any good. It's actually hurting you. Do you feel you can let it go and, and as best you can forgive him and say, I'm just leaving that in the past. 
I don't want to be attached to any of that stuff anymore. It was horrible. I'm going to move on and live my life. And she said, yes, I think I am. And so Pastor Owen said, I want you to verbalize that in some way, and then we'll pray for you. And so she spoke as if her father was there and just said, look, I'm letting all that go. Uh, I don't expect anything of you moving forward, whether we have a relationship at all, a good one or a bad one. It doesn't matter. I'm just putting it all in the past. That is not going to be my life moving forward. And having said this, I could sense she was breathing more deeply. She was sitting further back in her seat. And then she went very quiet. And then she leant down to pick up her crutches to go. And I said, oh, B, we haven't prayed for your back yet. And it was at that point she said, oh, my goodness, I'm completely healed. And so clearly what had happened was it was the trapped emotion yes. in her body that was hurting her. And once she was able to let it go, and I just take my hat off to her that she could, in that moment, take that opportunity, all that emotion was released very quietly, and there was the healing. Mm. So this blew my mind, and I asked Pastor Irwin afterwards, what made you think to ask that question? And he said, well, I don't know, really. I just shot up a prayer. Um, this lady looks so out of balance. How do we get her back in balance? And the thought came into my mind, ask her about her dad. The thought came into my mind is what he, he said. He was guided. Yeah. So it, at the time I had this worldview that said, ah, okay, God by the Holy Spirit gave the word of knowledge to a Christian minister. It was a very buttoned up view. That's fine. It, it explains what happened. But if I'd shared that story with my friend Troy or with a Nanga and a Sangoma from Southern Africa, they would have listened to that story and said, ah, the ancestors. Mm -hmm. And they would have said that voice was one of the ancestors speaking the word into Pastor Irwin's mind. And it was because of this conversation between her spirits and your spirits. And so now I realize that the phenomena I've experienced through decades fit into the pattern of shamanic healing, which is built on the worldview that every person has an invisible support team and that the support team can whisper things to you that support you in your journey. That's contact. That's contact just as much as I see a UFO, it lands and a being comes out of it and speaks to me. That's more dramatic. It's more filmic. But our ancestors say, oh, no, contact happens all the time. And it can happen very quietly and undramatically. And it's there in the New Testament. If you go to 1 John 4, the writer fully expects the early Christians to be having these experiences of spirits giving them information, being in communication with them. And the writer of 1 John never defines what those spirits are doesn't say if they're physical or non-physical, because a spirit can be physical in ancient language. Doesn't say if it's ancestral spirits, interdimensional spirits, ETs who communicate telepathically, if it's aspects of your higher self. He doesn't say, because apparently that's not what's important. What he says is important is you make up your own mind. You keep your sovereignty, keep your autonomy, and if you're willing to weigh and filter what comes, you will be getting some good information. And if I can just give a personal, I don't want to give too long an answer, but I want to give a personal oh, example of yeah, this. 
I was standing at the sink the other day doing some washing up and I was in a bad mood. I was feeling upset and angry about the way a certain health emergency had been managed in my part of the world and the implications for my family and the health of my family. And I was just sort of brooding over this while I was washing up. And from out of the blue, a thought came into my mind from somewhere that said, Paul, would it help if you saw it this way? And I had to stop washing up and think about it and reflect on this thought that had come into my mind. And I said out loud, do you know, actually, yes, it, it would be helpful. That actually does help me. It helps me to accept what's happened. Now, I know that wasn't my thought because it not only cut across my thoughts, it cut across my opinion. This was not my thought. It was something for me to consider. Now, I have no idea where that thought came from. If it was my higher self, it was an interdimensional being, if it was my deceased grandma whispering something in, I don't I have no idea. Doesn't matter. What's important is I thought about it and realized, yes, that is helpful. And it helped me. I'm smiling so big right now because that's what happened to me, Paul. That was my very first contact experience was stewing on something, ruminating, not being as kind and forgiving as I could be. And a thought, a message cut me off, just cut off my train of thought and delivered what was a very helpful message that helped me reframe how I was feeling and how I was, you know, acting towards this other person. And Fast forward, you know, a few years, I found out that some of those messages that then started to come more frequently were a combination, you know, of my non-physical team, but also interdimensional beings that I have a connection with. And maybe this is a good way to segue into your ET contact stories, because you've learned through this journey about some of your own experiences beyond just that so in your third book you actually open um, the book with uh, a, a quick synopsis of a regression that you did with Barbara Lamb who is a very uh, well-known ET regressionist and what did you learn in that process and how have you come to understand your own contact experiences? Sure well, I had a number of experiences when I was 20 years old that I always puzzled over and I knew I didn't have a handle on them. I didn't understand what had happened. And I had tried to explain them with the boxes I had in my theological worldview at that time. So I had these experiences and to my mind, they either had to be experiences of God or the devil <clears throat> angels or demons or human animal vegetable mineral i had no other boxes for the universe to fit right. into if you can imagine that and um, but i knew it didn't quite fit so i had a scary experience of five entities showing up in my apartment just outside bath and i didn't know what i was looking at i, I could see clearly enough to see that there were five of them. I could see clearly enough to see they were about the size of a year six, uh, but they were somehow translucent. Um, I knew they weren't human and I was scared. Uh, and then I don't remember what happened next. 
So one of the reasons I did the regression, because I was curious as to what happened next. Uh, in my memory, I just fell asleep. But that's not really very likely when you're as terrified as I was right. in that moment. So at the time, I thought, well, it was scary, so it must be a demonic experience. But the more I studied my theology, the more I realized, no, that is not the demon story that emerges in Holy Scriptures. That's not how they manifest. And in 33 years of ministry, I've learned how they manifest. Those were not demons. They were something else. And it's only now that I've done my research in paleo contact that I look back on that experience and say, I think I know exactly what that was. That was a close encounter of the fourth kind. Uh, those were probably small greys, but I'd never heard of a small grey when I was 20 years old. I don't think I knew what a close encounter of the fourth kind was. But looking back, I realized that's what that was. And then there was another close encounter of the fourth kind, this time with the um with the beautiful people mm. i encountered them in a shop holland and barrett in chichester in the uk and i was so affected by the presence of these two incredibly beautiful human beings with a with a toddler human being as well and i didn't understand why their mere presence was affecting me in this way and then i didn't understand their behavior because there seemed to be some kind of a telepathic communication going on between them. I won't tell the whole story because you can read it in the Scars of Eden. And I didn't understand it. And it seemed like a story of nothing. How do you share that story with, with your friends and family without them saying, you just saw some people who are very attractive. So what? Right. But I knew it was more than that. And so again, decades later, I realized people have been having these experiences all around the world for thousands of years where they encounter beings that look human and look very attractive, but they're actually something else. They're from somewhere else. They're visitors from the Pleiades or they're Nordic visitors to use our modern language. Again, I had none of that language when I was 20 years old, had no labels, no boxes. I just knew something very, very strange was happening right in front of me. And the reason I tell my stories in the books is precisely because they're not dramatic stories. Uh, they are not crystal clear. I saw a UFO. I saw a small gray. It looked like this. This is what happened. And the reason I tell my much vaguer stories is because I think most people's experiences of contact are vaguer. Mm -hmm. That like me, they'll remember the first couple of minutes of an experience and then they don't know what happened next or something happened that they just can't explain and can hardly describe and i think if we'll give one another permission to share stories like that that's when the picture begins to fill out i don't think there would be a friendship circle or a family circle anywhere that wouldn't have some anomalous story like that yeah. and if you can give permission to your friendship circle to say have you ever experienced something you couldn't explain i reckon every individual would have a story and the picture that would emerge from pooling those stories is we're not alone. And so I share my stories for that reason. And you went through with a regression to access some of those memories that were suppressed because when we have these anomalous experiences, or at least at the beginning, when it's so far outside of our worldview, 
our mind, our subconscious will suppress that to, to help us because we don't know what to do with that. So, yes. um, so I'm, I'm curious, you know, what was the turning point for you that made you say, I need a, re a regression? Well, the thing I really wanted to do a regression for was not the two encounters I just mentioned, but realizing that once or twice in that same year, I experienced lost time. And again, I had no language for that. When it happened, I didn't know how to understand the experiences. Now I look back and realized I lost some time. And things happened during that time that were evidenced um, in some other way, which I won't go into. So I wanted to know what happened in that lost time. So that's why I thought, all right, I'll, I'll go with Barbara Lamb because I've seen her do regressions with other people and I love her approach. It's so transparent. It's so simple. I'll give it a go. But what emerged from the regression was less about the details of those experiences and the details of the contact experiences. Mm -hmm. What emerged from the regression was what impact it made on my life mm -hmm. and to the course of my life. And I now realize that it was kind of pivotal for me in a way that I missed at the time. But it turned me into somebody who will recognize an anomaly for what it is and not believe I've explained it away. Right. Who will recognize something in an ancient text, including the Bible, that has not been explained and that needs looking into. It made me spot people who had experiences that didn't fit into the grid of our theology. And instead of pretending it fitted, I would call it out and say we need to think about that we don't understand that and it made me a person who would always look for the hidden layers of story and I couldn't do couldn't have done any of my work as a church doctor without being a person like that who would listen to the stories and then ask what has not been said who would look at what's happened and say what has not been revealed it totally altered my approach to ministry through all the 33 years I was in church-based ministry. And it's only now I realize it did that. And that's how important it was to me. It's no coincidence, it seems like, that you're here today doing what you're doing. You know, being a, a contactee, being a person who's had these anomalous experiences, being a person, like you said, who has had that level of study and, and curiosity and I just so appreciate you being willing to change your mind when presented with new information I think that's so important for all of us to stay in that curious open place because there's a lot more about our universe that we're uncovering every day and learning about <laughs> absolutely I think curiosity is one of the most vital things that we have as human beings I think curiosity is what's driven maybe all of human progress that we want to learn that we want to investigate that we can imagine a world different to the one we're in and so if i can spark people's curiosity i think that's one of the most wonderful things possible what would you say is i guess at stake for us as we you know move through this unlearning and relearning process you know what are we what are we letting go of 
you know, to go back to the shamanic energy medicine yeah. practice, let's, let's do that with the audience. You know, what do we need to let go of and, and what's yeah. ahead? You know, what, what can we be really hopeful and excited about as we go through this relearning process? Well, we touched on the psychological benefit of, of doing this reframing work, because if you live in a universe where you have to tiptoe around a potentially very violent God who will smite you if you get it wrong, that absolutely eviscerates our, our self-esteem and our self-confidence and the confidence we bring to our lives. So to escape from that and begin to recover your self-esteem and your respect and love for all humanity i mean that's that is absolutely fundamental to be able to do anything so i think there's that i think we live in a world where the powers and brilliance of human beings is suppressed by the way we're governed most governments are interested in having populations that are governable i mean I mean, that's just like saying a classroom teacher wants to be in, in control of the classroom. So right. it's, it's only stating the obvious, but at the level of society, it can be very diminishing and demeaning. And human beings are far more wonderful than compliant social units. <laughs> we're incredible beings. <laughs> and many of our ancestral narratives say that when those who came and genetically engineered our ancestors. They came and did that and they were surprised by how conscious and intelligent the Homo sapiens turned out as. And suddenly they were thinking, how do, how do we work with this? We are brilliant. We are so special that we have visitors from other parts of the cosmos studying us. That's part of the contact experience. And then there are hybridization narratives all around the world that go back tens of thousands of years because some of our neighbors want what we have in their gene pool. Mm. And I think in us, there's a unique blend of earthling heritage and, and ET advantage, of mammal heritage and ET tweaking, that means we have a unique capacity for love, compassion, creativity. I think we enjoy our lives in a way that some of our cosmic cousins don't, and all that makes us special. I think when you listen to the teaching of the greats through the ages, like Jesus, like Lao Tzu, they issue these invitations to explore what's possible that suggest we can have a far more conscious, intelligent, and elevated experience as human beings. And so I want to know what that is. What would it be, what would it be like for all of us to live on this planet in a more conscious, intelligent way? What would that look and feel like? And so it's, it's the appetite for that journey of exploration that I really want to excite in the Eden series. I love that. And, and that certainly excited me, you know, as I read your books and, and was just remembering how, how much more we can be. And, and you even articulate in the books that it appears there was an even a, an attempt by the powerful ones the negative powerful ones to inhibit our consciousness abilities to inhibit our you know extrasensory perception to make us maybe less intelligent and we have oh this, yes we have this ability to maybe reactivate 
dormant DNA that Absolutely. we haven't been using. So that's your understanding as well? Absolutely. That's absolutely correct. And it is the explanation of who we are that's given by many ancient cultures around the world. If you think of the story in Genesis 3, which is told as the story of the fall in Augustinian Calvinist Christianity, you read that story again, you realize it's a tussle between two beings over how intelligent the human beings should be. You go to Genesis 11 and you can see that there's a technological species that has got too technological. And so it's bombed back into a pre-Stone Age condition. Go to the story of Zeus and Prometheus. Zeus gets angry because Prometheus has made the human beings too technological. And so they have to be taken down a peg or two. Go to Mesoamerica and there's a very detailed explanation of a downgrade of our higher powers. I love how detailed it gets. It says that the chief genetic engineer, Kukumats, came up with Homo sapiens, sapiens, sapiens. So that's us plus some higher cognitive abilities. And suddenly they've got a, a kind of human being that has better telepathic connection than we do, better remote viewing than we have, better future viewing than we have. And they found they couldn't work with that. All they wanted was a species intelligent enough to be their working class. Well, how do you manipulate or exploit or herd a species that knows what you're thinking? You don't. So they have, they have an emergency meeting and they say, how can we downgrade these humans? So they're just bright enough to work for us. Right. And Kukumats comes up with a vapor that when sprayed over human populations, will damage the health of the humans in such a way that it shuts off their access to their higher powers. And it says specifically how. It talks about the vision of the human beings being impaired, brought down to the point where they can only see what's immediately around them. Now that might be totemic for all of the human senses, that we only know what's in our immediate environment and for any other information we have to rely on an authority to tell us what's what. And they found that useful, they could work with that. So just thinking through the implications of that, this vapor that limits our vision to this, what we're familiar with, how is our vision limited exactly? Well, it's limited by surfaces. We can't see into things, we can't see behind things. It's limited by space. We can't see further than the horizon, we can't see into deep space. It's limited by time. We can only see the present. We can't see the past. We can't see the future. It's limited by frequency. We can only see this range of colors or radio lengths. Some animals can see this. Some animals can see this. Your pet cat can see things you can't see. So what happens if we take all those limits off? You'll suddenly start seeing what the other animals see you will suddenly be able to see much further. We call that remote viewing. You'll be able to see beyond this local time. That's called past viewing, future viewing, precognition. You can see into things. That's called X-ray vision. Mm -hmm. And suddenly you realize that we're capable of so much more absent of this vapor being sprayed over us in the Popol Vuh's story. It echoes a story from out of Nigeria in which the engineers, Abassi and Atai, release devices into the environment to make the humans mentally ill and physically ill so they can manage them. And they're quite negative stories, 
but there's a positive take home. The positive take home is that when they want to downgrade the human beings, they don't alter the DNA again. They leave all the DNA there and they release something into the environment. And what that hints at is that we still have these abilities, but they're in the off position. That's confirmed by contemporary science. This is real science by real peer-reviewed neuroscientists who study a thing called acquired savant syndrome. Mm -hmm. That's a syndrome where higher cognitive abilities are knocked on by accident. So a brain injury, a central nervous system event, a stroke, and people will emerge from these injuries. Suddenly they can speak a language they couldn't speak before, play a musical instrument they couldn't play before. They're brilliant at mathematics or advanced physics. And these scientists ask, what are higher cognitive abilities doing in our brain in the off position? That doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. And is there a way of switching them on without a brain injury? And our mystical and shamanic traditions have always said, yes. Yes, we can switch them on. Yes, we all have those abilities. Yes, for the most part, they're in the opposition. Our ancestral stories will tell you why. And here are our protocols for accessing future viewing, remote viewing, self-healing, telepathic connection. And you realize these things all belong together. They're all interwoven. Accessing higher powers, stories of paleo contact, a different story of human origins, in ancestral narratives, they all belong together. And the take home is that we can re-empower ourselves and operate at a higher level. I think that is so profound for the audience to hear. We, we've talked about DNA before. We've talked about dormant DNA with Geraldine Orozco, who is- uh, Oh yes, uh, I love Geraldine yeah, Orozco. Yeah, we interviewed her a few weeks ago and uh, had a great conversation about how we can like you said, become more empowered and take control of our environment, our mindset, our healing to do that DNA activation work. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, scientists talk about junk DNA. Right. And uh, some have said, well, uh, it's just it's just random stuff. And then others have said, no, that's actually the DNA of other life forms. So it's it, it, it's inactive because it doesn't relate to us. But then our ancestors say, no, some of that DNA is ours, but it's inactive and we need to re-engage it and activate it. And that's what the shamanic protocols are about. Exactly. You know, I've made my life uh, an experiment in that over the last few years. And, and I can tell the audience that as I've engaged in that healing work, engaged in the energy medicine work, absolutely those extrasensory you know abilities do start to expand um at usually at a rate you can handle and i just yes. did an experiment that i will follow up with you and tell you the results of paul so now that i know about energy medicine and how you know we store the imprints of trauma in our energy field that also affects the um the expression of our dna and so we yes. need to clear that trauma right to, to have a very clear energy field to upgrade our, our blueprint. And so after having learned about this inhibitor, right, that essentially was placed on us and, and 
the trauma, right, that we've been carrying through all of these generations, I've been doing energy clearings on myself related to that specific trauma of the powerful ones putting the inhibitors in place. So I'm excited. I just started it this week. So I'm excited to see, you know, kind of what that new level of energy clearing does for me. And I'll report back. Oh, that's wonderful. And I fully agree with what you're saying, Jenna, there, that I believe our ancestors have carried trauma for generations from the period when we were governed by violent, non-compassionate beings. I think that is, uh, has had a profound effect on us. And I was introduced to the idea that trauma could be carried through the generations uh, through uh, an alteration in how our DNA functions uh, by a visit to the pharmacy uh, a couple of years ago. And the guy who was uh, dispensing the medications for me on that day was very, very slim. And so I said, um, can I just ask, you are wonderfully slim. What's your secret? Because at my time of life, that's an interest of mine, if you know what I mean. And uh, he said, oh, I'll tell you the story. He said, traditionally, my family was not slim. We were, you know, heavy, full-bodied people until my great-grandfather was in Auschwitz. And when he came out, because he survived it, he was rake-thin. And then he had children who were rake-thin. And they had children who were rake-thin. They had children who were rake-thin. And so in that death camp, his great-grandfather's body had to learn how to live rake-thin. And it passed that lesson on to its progeny and to all his descendants. Their bodies were rake thin because a trauma had affected a a patriarch of that family line. And my pharmacist friend doesn't need to live rake thin, but his body thinks he does. And so I'd be very interested to see how that could be healed. I mean, he doesn't have yeah. problems necessarily being that thin, but the reason for it is trauma. Right. And right. how would it be if there was a healing of the, the family field? Yeah. How would that manifest in the DNA history of that family moving forward? Would yeah. they be able to carry weight in the future if there was a profound healing? Yeah, probably. Probably, you know, I, I've seen so many profound healings <clears throat> in this work and through, you know, lots of other modalities as well. But, you know, it's not always guaranteed, but that sort of stuff does happen. So, you know, I think this is an invitation to anyone out there watching who, you know, may have their own personal trauma from this lifetime, but also be carrying, you know, all of that trauma we've experienced over the last 2000 years engage you know in healing modalities of of any kind you know because they all are effective in their own way and like like you said the body carries that trauma yeah i think i mean my belief is it can turn the other way and that just because your family line has oh we've always been this or this has always happened to the males of my family i believe we can change those stories because my pharmacist's family story was changed by something external it changed the DNA story. And I think we can flip it the other way. We can break the pattern. There can be healing and we can have a better way forward. And I think 
the secrets of that really are embedded deep in the ancestral stories of our indigenous peoples. I, I believe so too. That's one of, one of my absolute passions is um, integrating as much of that wisdom as I can and bringing it to, to our audience and community. And um, maybe this is a good moment to wrap up with talking about your third book where uh, you do go a bit deeper on some of those ancestral narratives you you know interview and talk with so many people that you reference in the book so i'd love to give you an opportunity to to highlight that book and what you're excited about as it's releasing and um, tell the audience when it's releasing and when they can find it sure well i was really excited to get into echoes of eden because after escaping from Eden and the scars of Eden, I had learned that stories of paleocontact and human potential are absolutely interwoven in the world's traditional indigenous narratives. So to unpack the question of how can we have a better human experience, I knew where I had to go. I had to sit at the feet of the guardians and elders of indigenous traditions and tap their wisdom, wisdom that's been passed on through the generations through initiation ceremony. And those of us who live in cultures that don't have it, I think feel really impoverished for the lack of it. As I started studying it, I realized that governments around the world for centuries have tried to stop initiation practices because they don't want an empowered population. As we said earlier, they want a compliant governable population. And so I joined the dots through the centuries of attempts to silence the indigenous story, not because it's an argument over what fiction should be in the libraries. <laughs> the issue is really how empowered should human beings be? It's quite clear that the information carried by the initiation traditions is threatening to the powers that govern. It has alternative information and alternative sources of power. And so it's a bit of a smoking gun when you see how concerted the effort has been to shut down indigenous information. So I give various examples of that. Uh, I talk about the Cathars, for instance, in France in the 1200s. Uh, historians reckon up to a million French people living in the Long Dock were exterminated by 19 successive popes because they were showing Europe what happens when you apply the wisdom of the ages, this ancient information, and they generated a better society. So when I was talking before about how might life look if we lived more conscious, more intelligent, the Cathars were a case study. They, they showed it was real and not theory only. Right. Or you look at the history of the indigenous peoples of the USA, Canada, Australia, the same 100 year period, 1880 to 1980, the governments of those three countries tried to stop and illegalize initiation ceremonies. All three places operated a stolen generation policy to take children away from their First Nation families so that they wouldn't be trained in their traditional ways, they wouldn't have their traditional abilities and they could discontinue the indigenous culture altogether. And the truth and reconciliation process in Canada has said very plainly, this was an attempt at cultural genocide. So it's another smoking gun, literally. Uh, thousands of ch 10,000 children murdered 
in the boarding schools of Canada, not, not any old children, no, just the children of First Nation families, because they're trying to discontinue the tradition so that First Nation Canadians won't know what their ancestors knew and won't be able to do what their ancestors could do. Yet, there's this, this dark thread through history of all this suppression and violence. But again, the flip side is this information never goes away. It always resurfaces. It always survives. It's always rediscovered. And in Echoes of Eden, I trace that journey saying, you can find this information. You can find it here, here, and here. It resurfaces here. It resurfaces here. It's put into practice here. And it's still just as empowering as it was thousands of years ago when this information was first laid down. And so Echoes of Eden is about that kind of a journey, enabling the reader to sit with the people I've sat with and learn the things I've learned. And there are things you can begin applying in your own life to reactivate a more conscious way of life. Uh, where you can find Echoes of Eden, well, you can go to Amazon, Kindle, Barnes & Noble, High Book Depository, wherever books are sold, and you'll find Escaping from Eden, The Scars of Eden, Echoes of Eden. And if you want to get into conversation with me about what you find in those books, you can do that on the Fifth Kind TV on YouTube or the Paul Wallace channel on YouTube. I'm always in the comments every day having conversations with people. And if you want to take it further and do some coaching with me, come to paulanthonywallace.com, Anthony with an H, Wallace, W-A-L-L-I-S, paulanthonywallace.com, and I can get into conversation with you from there. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Paul. This has been just a fabulous conversation. It has filled me up in many ways. I love talking about these topics and helping people process and, and heal, you know, through these conversations, because that's the work we're doing here is healing, you know, from, from all of that misinterpretation. And like you said, those, those darker threads that have, that have been consistent throughout history, but your work is giving us uh, a new foundation to stand on. And I'm just so appreciative and grateful for, for your leadership in the field. Oh, thank you, Jenna. Thanks so much for having me on today. I really enjoyed the conversation. It was wonderful. Thank you, Paul. And for the audience, definitely check out Paul's work. There's links to his website, his YouTube channels, his books in the show notes. Read all of them. That's your homework. <laughs> they are incredible. You'll learn a lot. And Paul, we'll have to chat again. This has been just so great. And there's so much more to talk about. I have about a million questions on these topics. So <laughs> but oh, we're wonderful. out of time. So we'll have to wrap up for today. <laughs> thanks, Jenna. I'll look forward to next time. Yeah, thanks, Paul. Thanks, everyone. Don't forget to like, subscribe, leave a comment. Let us know what you, you thought about the conversation and uh, what questions you have that we can continue to answer in future episodes. We'll see you next time. Bye for now. Thank you.